The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, January 16th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Kirsten Gillibrand has entered the presidential race. To have a Kirsten before a Kristen or a Christine or a Christina, I gotta say, the demographers got it all wrong. Now, of course, we had to figure that we'd have a Kirsten before a Karsten, and we have had plenty of Chris's, but never a Christian, although they've all been Christians, but all the Chris's have been Christopher's, meaning Chris Dodd and Chris Christie. I suppose you could say he had two shots at being a Christian, but he never nailed it. Chris Sununu is out there as a possible Chris candidate, also wouldn't be a Christian, would be a Christopher, but he is a Christian. Now, the part that struck me in the candidate announcement video, as all candidates must have, was the following. And it just struck me as a journalist. Man, my skin would crawl if a quote-unquote question that I asked were ever used in this way. There is no better leader on the issue of fighting money in politics and the corrupting influence of money in politics than you. That's an interviewer from a group called End Citizens United. And the video ends with another seemingly question, but really statement from an interview conducted with Gillibrand by Jon Stewart. Instrumental in passing the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Instrumental in passing the 9-11 First Responders Bill. Instrumental in passing the Food Safety Bill. Instrumental in the ban on dropside cribs. You have done all this very much under the radar, out of the spotlight. Look, I know John Stewart's not a journalist, and he was active in passing that first responders bill that uh, he referred to, and she greatly helped. Probably the other way around, she was instrumental and he helped. But all I ever do in my intros is try to make them not sound too fawning. And if they ever show up in an endorsement video, I would be appalled. Of course, on The Real Daily Show, that was all a little bit of preface, and John Stewart landed actually on this question. Instrumental in passing the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Instrumental, <laughs> instrumental in passing the 9-11 First Responders Bill. Instrumental in passing the food safety uh, bill. Instrumental in the ban on dropside cribs that were uh, uh, hurting children. Instrumental in a, a law stopping uh, illegal drugs from crossing the Canadian border. You, you, you've been there two years. Gillibrand, what's your game? <laughs> Aha, her game is running for president or turns out to be running for president, which, by the way, is fine. I mean, I know we punish our elected officials for ambition. What's better, unambitious legislators? Who needs them? And we would never question a man for being ambitious. Yeah, actually, we would. We do it all the time. This is like what a third of the Sunday shows are about. It is a trope. Do you have designs for higher office? Will you fess up to those designs? And I really do think it's nothing to apologize for. Gillibrand is not wrong to want to have higher office. But it is notable that they did cut the question out of the announcement video. She will have, overall, a little more than a year to answer all of the questions asked, implied, preambled to, because the first votes in the 2020 presidential race are in Iowa in February. On the show today, I spiel about that which we should have thought in regular English. Should have thought of that. But first, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez floated the idea of a 70% top tax rate. Oh, it's quite a mainstream idea. 
Paul Krugman told us. It is not. I mean, I don't think it's a radical crazy out of the mainstream idea, but most economists who look at this would not sign off on 70% being the optimal top tax rate. Uh, Some would. Now, however many would or wouldn't, it doesn't mean that 70% is the right top tax rate or the wrong one, but rates that high do have implications that you might not have thought of, and crucially, they might not even address the problem they're supposed to address. Adam Davidson is here with a conversation about all of that that we can guarantee will occupy 70% of your interest. And that's not the top estimate. That's the minimum. The other day, I had a uh, live show in Brooklyn, and uh, an excellent discussion was had by me and my next guest, Adam Davidson. We talked about marginal tax rates was the issue. Uh, Some members of the audience say, next time, maybe you don't want to start with the marginal tax rates. They were wrong. But during that show, uh, Adam's son was on his lap for much of the interview, and he enjoyed it. But I kind of feel it maybe got in the way of the most in-depth conversation we could have possibly had. Also, the miking was off and people were drinking. So let's do it now here in a more rigorous format and then we'll drink. Hello, Adam. How are you? Hi, Mike. What's your ID? You're the founder of Planet Money. You do the Swamp Chronicles for the New Yorker. That's right. Yes. And your Um, son? Former New York Times economics writer. that's true. Father of Ash, who introduced you at this event. Yes, it was a really good event. Yes. But what I really but my son was bored out of his mind. He's seven <laughs> about marginal tax rates. Yeah. And while you were interviewing me live in front of an audience, he kept whispering, Daddy, when are we going to be done with this? Doesn't know the power of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez because she's the one who injected the idea that maybe we should have marginal tax rates of or approaching 70%. Now, the intellectual underpinnings of this idea was there was a study that came out a few years ago by Diamond and Slace, no, Diamond and Says, 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 and they decided 73%, that would be a good tax rate. Seems high to me. It's about twice as high as the highest tax rate on the federal level now. What do you think of it? So with with taxation, there's a few uh, ways to think about taxation. So a lot of economists, they talk about tax efficiency or tax optimization. And basically that framework, it's very mechanistic. It's not value-laden. It's simply saying, all right, there's a country and there's economic activity in that country and there's a government that needs funding. There's right. things that need funding. What is the way to fund the government so that it has the least impact on the economic activity? Yeah. So you, and I guess if there is a value there, there are values there, they would be we don't want citizens, business owners spending a lot of time thinking about tax policy, going into some businesses because it's there's a tax advantage, leaving other activities because there's some negative tax um, right. implications. You don't want the tax rules warping how society, the optimal way to organize society. Exactly. And that's for a whole host of reasons, including that that creates corruption. I mean, you, you look in the oil and gas industry gets a lot of tax subsidies. Those make us poorer overall. Yeah. Those reward people not for adding productive goods and services to our economy, but for just being able to lobby the right politicians to get a tax rate this way and that. And in the long term, if you have an economy that's largely driven by government fiat making tax policy 
out of a lobbying process. Like you're just not going to get as good an economy as right. you are where people are making their own choices based on what will succeed or fail in a marketplace. So from a tax efficiency standpoint, there's actually fairly little distance between left-leaning and right-leaning economists. Good. Consensus. Mitt Romney's, if I remember correctly, I might be off by a a tiny amount, but it was like Mitt Romney's top marginal tax rate was 34.6. Obama's was 39.6. So we're talking about pretty small differences that somehow were turned into the difference between tyranny and freedom. I'd say most economists do believe that poor people should not only pay less tax, they should pay a lower percentage of their income, and that below some income level, poor people shouldn't pay any tax at mm-hmm. all and could even, as we do, have an earned income tax credit where, where they're actually paid money. So under that rubric, and they run these mathematical models with artificial intelligence and machine learning, et cetera, there's something called the effective tax rate, which is basically how much did you actually spend as a percentage of your income. You rarely get a tax rate above 30%, 28%, 30%. Again, this is with very few or no deductions. Yeah, meaning, meaning a tax rate of that amount of money actually being taken from your paycheck. Right. So the reason we go above that is precisely because we do all this... Um, chicanery. All this chicanery. <laughs> all the, and some deductions. of it... Yeah, and it can sound like a good reason. Oh, I, no, no, I like the homeowner tax deduction because I want to yeah. incentivize... We want to incentivize exactly. solar panels or whatever. Right. We want to use the tax code to encourage certain actions. And as a general rule, everyone likes the tax deductions they get and is against the tax deductions they don't get. But um, anyway, so why would you want to get all the way up to 73%? What would be the reason? It certainly creates distortion. Distortions. I mean, if when there's a marginal tax rate of 73%, very, very few people actually pay that. Yes. And, and that was true in America when we did have a marginal tax rate very, even higher, first of all. Second of all, there's just not a lot of people who make $10 million a year. So even if you taxed them at 100%, it's just not that much money because there's so few of them. Right. It's not going to really solve a lot of fiscal problems. It's not going to so dramatically increase the amount of money coming into the government. Well, proponents could say that, okay, it won't solve a problem. It would create the opportunity to have Medicare for all. Oh, no, it's not even even a tiny... I mean, you're literally talking about, like, a drop of water versus an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Like, it's... The numbers are so wildly out of whack. Well, for one thing, um, people seem to gloss over the fact that except for a few states, people also pay state tax and often local taxes. So there was this example going around of how much The Rock would pay. And I guess they were trying, the, the actor The Rock, and I guess they were trying to point out it wouldn't be 70% of all his income. It would only be 70% of the income over $10 million. And the ultimate lesson was, oh, look at how many millions he would still have. However, if the tax rate, if he is a California resident, which he is, any income over $1 million and 70 4,000 married filing jointly, it gets taxed at 13.3%. So then we're talking about if the rate is 70 or 73%, him paying 86% in taxes. So not only are the calculations are off, at a certain point, and I would think 86% would be that point, he's just going to turn down projects. So in other words... Or he's going to do them in another country. Sure, he's not going to make that 65% if... 
you know, anything over 10 million will be, oh, instead of your $8 million payday, it will literally be a $1 million payday. He's not going to do that for a million dollar payday. So that's distorting, I think would be the the word that an economist would use, the distortionary effects of such a yeah, high tax. I mean, well, it, it, it's a huge disincentive and then it distorts how the economy works. So the big issue, and this is something Saez and, and Diamond talk about, is we don't have a global tax system. So you can relocate to another country and you can and and countries can compete to attract wealthy people um, we saw this with Gerard Depardieu you know saying he's going to move to Russia for tax reasons Steven Seagal just did it for artistic reasons for artistic reasons yeah, yeah. exactly i mean we saw this you know the classic examples jamaica where michael manley the president in um, the 70s said we're going to tax millionaires very hev- heavily and any millionaires who don't like that there's three planes a day to Miami or something to that effect. And they took them up on it. And, yeah. and Jamaica is no question a poorer country. Now, that doesn't then mean, oh, so we have to do whatever the rich want because I'm afraid they're going to leave. Yes. And, you know, I tend to be not for pro-rich policies and I would like a more progressive and, and I would like tax rates higher. But I think as a rule of thumb, certainly when you get above 50 percent as a marginal tax rate, you're really pushing people away. And that's the full marginal tax rate. So that would include state and local right. So taxes. this is why it's always been compelling to me. The Republicans will always argue whenever you want to raise taxes any bit, well, you're going to disincentivize work. And they do a lot of studies on this. And it shows that the normal uh, debate, the normal range of debate, you're not going to disincentivize work from a tax rate of th- highest federal tax rate of 35 to 39%. But as you say, once you get over 50, you might. And back when the tax rate was 94%, and I want to get to this argument too, when it was 94%, of course it disincentivized work. I remember interviewing and reading the biography of uh, Johnny Carson's accountant and lawyer, Bushkin, the bombastic Bushkin, and he would talk about how there were all these opportunities that Carson had, and he just didn't want to take them up on them because he was getting taxed at the time at 94%. So of course he added less wealth to the economy. And another really good, compelling argument is a lot of times there'll be a very rich person and he might be married or she might be married, but almost always he might be married to someone who wants to be a teacher. But once you start filing jointly at 90%, do you really want to go and be a teacher for literally $13 a week? Right. Yeah. Yeah. What seems like a more radical idea, but is probably more economically sound, but in, in an American context is super radical, is taxing wealth. So wealth, you know, income is what I make this year. Wealth is what I have. But if it's you, doable, it's it's... I mean, it's certainly literally doable. Technically doable. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. You literally like you're looking at your computer and like how much value is left. You're, I'm looking at your laptop. It's kind of beat up. And yeah. you know, is it is there eight hundred dollars in left? It's three hundred. You know, so there's tricks and issues you'd have to face because it's not just money in the bank. It's how much actual wealth you have, like how how much silverware you have, how much how many nice paintings you have. So so it's a costly process to assess. Now, of course, the problem is. A wealth tax would be created like any tax through a political process that is overly dominated by the wealthy. So sure. it is it is very hard to conceive of. But if I had Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez's platform, I feel like the thing I'd be lobbying for is a wealth tax. Wealth inequality is a huge problem. Wealth inequality might be the problem. Good. I'm glad you said that. How much of that problem is because of a screwed up tax code? How much of that problem can be solved with anything related to taxes? I think taxes is the main tool. 
and we know famously there's racial disparity, there's gender disparity um, in income. Wealth, especially multi-generational wealth, it's a similar problem in which there are extreme racial and gender differences, but it's a different sort of problem. A lot of intergenerational wealth is not Bill Gates deciding whether or not to leave billions of dollars to his mm-hmm. kids, which I think he has decided not to, from what I understand. It's actually... They are, they are ingrates, to be They're fair. ingrates, yeah. yes. But if you're in a world where you're going to get, say, 35 grand or 112 grand or whatever, when you're 28, 32, something like that, and that allows you to put a down payment on a home or to go to graduate school or to start a business, it sort of sets you off on a totally different kind of income and wealth dynamic. Mm-hmm. That will then transfer to your children and their children. And you want to take that, Adam? You want to take that 35 and make it 32.5 with, oh, your, with your tax? Yeah, oh. I do. Oh. Um, okay. Because to oversimplify, our economy, the shot we got at like being good for everybody is, is growth, even though some people don't like the word growth. In an economic context, that doesn't mean bigger buildings mm-hmm. or you know, faster cars or bigger roads. It simply means we know how to do more stuff. There's more stuff out there. And that stuff comes from people thinking up new ideas, people making better products or making the same products cheaper. Growth is more like knowledge than like things. And that's our shot. Like if someone else wants to come up with another shot, okay. But right now, that is the economy we live in. If you want your life and your children's life to be better and you want your neighbor's life to be better in the future, that comes from growth. And having some significant percentage of of economic activity focused on preserving wealth is the opposite of growth. It is holding on. It's preventing growth. It's stopping forward momentum. And they start um, manipulating government. They start lobbying for their position. They start putting their cronies in power, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we clearly see that. There's no question that we see, again, the Trump administration is almost like a comically extreme version of it. If you made it as a movie, you'd be like, yeah, that's, that's not how it really works. That's a little broad, where you have someone who inherited his wealth, squandered much of it, but kept enough, hiring a bunch of other people, many of whom inherited wealth, to make America even better for people who inherited wealth. It's a very bad, bad system. Yeah. I mean, my, my wife's great-grandfather invented something called the Banbury Mixer, which was this... Oh, sure. Giant... Does DJs everywhere use it? No, no, no. It, <laughs> it, it, it's crucial in the rubber industry. It oh. mixes rubber in a very special way that I'm I don't understand. One, yeah. <laughs> and his son, my wife's grandfather, never worked a day in his life. Uh-huh. Now, to my great frustration, he, I think, spent his last dollar on the day he died, you know, <laughs> so there's no... I'd, I'm not benefiting from that. But we don't want an economy filled with people who don't have to work or whose work is preserving the wealth that their great-grandfather made. That's a bad economy. And so I don't think income tax is the best. I think it's crucial, and I'm for an income tax, and, yeah. but I think wealth tax is where it's at. We have, we're going to have like 20 people running for uh, president on the Democratic side. If one of them said wealth tax, would your ears perk up and you'd maybe give that person an extra hard look? Yes, Combined with the fact that obviously I'm a political realist and I know, oh, okay, that person is definitely not going to be president. <laughs> Once you say it, it yeah. yeah, it's pretty much disqualified. I mean, you know, the Democratic Party itself is you really all the wealth can- tax of all the things that Bernie, who came kind of close to the nomination, of all the things he was saying, you think wealth tax is more radical than that? I, I think in America today, 
preserving wealth is like if you were an alien and studying how decisions are made in America mm-hmm. and what seems to be important to this nation. Yeah. Preser- Emojis and preserving wealth. Preserving the wealth of very rich people yeah, seems like, like that's yeah. our thing. Yeah, that's, that's what it. we want to do. So I, I would think I would think you would lose a lot of the democratic fundraising people. And I think there's a lot of the not rich Republicans who for a whole host of complex reasons, have adopted an uh, uh, an anti yeah. tax yeah. Um, view as some kind of moral core, yeah. Yeah. like so, how a state tax polls poorly, even though it helps almost everyone. <laughs> it helps almost everyone. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think wealth tax would be tough. Adam Davidson covers so many things. Uh, I'll give you a couple of his credits. He writes for the New Yorker, his Swamp Chronicles, Chronicle the Swamp. He's also the founder of. National Public Radio's Planet Money was a consultant on the uh, film The Big Short, has a son named Asher, and joins me occasionally on stage. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. Today's spiel is about you should have thought of that. You should have thought of that. You should have thought of that national edition. Senator Lindsey Graham was leading day two of the hearings to consider Bill Barr for attorney general. The Republicans were obviously carrying water for him. Bill Barr Bagman has a ring to it. Now, it wasn't an unexpected journey in the Senate. I'll stop with all the the puns, force of Hobbit. (laughs) It wasn't an unexpected journey when Bill Barr didn't even testify because today was about experts being sworn in and asked their opinion. And the president of the NAACP was there. He raised concern about Barr's assertion that justice is roughly equal in America for black and white Americans. The Urban League's Mark Moriel talked about voting rights, which led to this exchange with Chairman Lindsey Graham. In two instances, Attorney General Sessions, in his first days and months in office, had the Justice Department change sides in the middle of an important civil rights case. Elections matter. Texas, but Senator, the enforcement of the law does not. The enforcement of civil rights laws is neutral when it comes to elections. Oh, discussion of voting rights Exactly the wrong time to say elections matter. You should have thought of that, Senator Graham. You walked into that one. The characters in the gigantic video game Red Dead Redemption 2 walked into an out of trouble in their game. And a major antagonist in many of the adventures within the game are these historical tough guys. Agent Milton, Agent Ross, Pinkerton Detective Agency, seconded to the United States government. Ah, the Pinkertons, the strike-busting, Lincoln-protecting, Jesse James-chasing, head-bashing mercenaries of U.S. history. But not just history, also the present. The current Pinkertons are a subsidiary of a Swedish multinational firm, Securitas. They're suing the video game maker behind Red Dead Redemption 2. The use of Pinkerton as the bad guy in this game is hurting their brand, they argue. Well, first of all, it's good to see you arguing with your words, Pinkertons, not with your billy clubs. But if you don't want negative associations, you should have thought of that when you retained the name Pinkertons. 
The reason that there are negative associations with the name is that the actual Pinkertons did a lot of actual negative things. It would be as if Tammany Hall were still the brand name for the New York Democratic Party and sued if you said Tammany Hall was corrupt. Or if a lawsuit were brought against James Cameron by the current rights holders to the trademark Titanic. Other amoral mercenaries throughout history know to change their names. Blackwater renamed itself because they kept killing innocent people. They realized they had negative associations. So what they did was they hid, they obfuscated like good nefarious actors who stick to the shadows. Blackwater became GXE, I think it's pronounced G services. And then they became Academy ending in an I. And then they were a part of Constellus Holdings. And now they're known as Maroon 5. They're the same outfit, just with a different name. The stink on the Pinkertons is still on them, and they should have realized that when they kept the name. You know what? England should have realized that Brexit was just not going to fly. Although, backdoor sunset, that's what's going to get them out of it. There might be a backdoor sunset. I'm not going to get into the details. But if you follow Brexit, if you're a Romaniac like I am, you love the backdoor sunset. Oh, Brexit, it's so complex. Theresa May... She retained her job as prime minister, but she lost the worst vote in parliament in the last hundred years. The last worst vote before the Brexit vote was against prosecuting the editor of the communist newspaper, The Workers Weekly. So, Theresa May's plan in 2019, less popular than England's most prominent communist in 1924. Other votes that Brexit did worse than, this house believes football is a tad boring. That failed by less than Brexit failed. A bill to allow all English people to emote freely with a quavering upper lip, that failed the British Parliament less than the Brexit vote did. The bill to declare fish and chips meh and kind of greasy failed by less in Parliament than the Brexit vote just did. But don't worry, backdoor sunset. You know, what this tells me is that you could gin up public opposition under false premises and scare tactics. You could win a vote based on that. America seems founded on it. But then to actually craft a deal that wouldn't be a disaster can't happen. And you should have thought of that. David Cameron got the first part wrong to bring the vote in the first place. He thought the Brits would defeat this Brexit idea and that would help him. Incorrect. Ushered off the world stage you go. But now Mrs. May with her impossible and thankless task. I mean, it turns out it's easier to oppose a fundamentally flawed idea than to put your name on an obvious disaster. And Theresa May should have thought of that. They all should have. So should the U.S. pulling out of Syria. Oh, turns out ISIS isn't quite as dead as the president said they were. Should have thought of that. The Clemson players actually liked eating fast food at the White House. I saw that coming. We all should have thought of that. And in slightly more important White House news, Donald Trump might not be able to give the State of the Union address to Congress because the person who decides who gets to address Congress is Nancy Pelosi. And Donald Trump should have thought of that. In fact, his is the should-have-thought-of-that presidency. Perhaps we're living in the should-have-thought-of-that era. You know, maybe I could register that brand. Well, let me look it up. Nope, it's taken. Apparently by the guys at Jackass. I should have thought of that. 
And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname edit and produce the gist. And they ask if The Rock does one fewer movie, but that movie is Towering Inferno. Can we really said to have suffered as an economy? Good point, says senior producer of Slate Podcast, TJ Raphael. He should have thought of that. The gist, you know, I don't know much about marginal rates. What I do know about is marginalizing hate. And you can't write that off. Am I electable now? Oomperu, deperu, deperu, and thanks for listening.